1: Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome to another episode of the Anne Security for All. I am your host, Kim Hagum. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Last week, I was out in Utah where it is crazy. I just got a text that they are getting from right now until Monday, 30 to 50 inches of snow. They said they're going to get an inch every hour, so that's about four feet of snow And they already have tons. I am in the Midwest waiting for that winter storm to roll through here. We are going down to about minus. Two or three. I guess for you guys out in Minneapolis, you guys are used to that, but I'm here in St. Louis and we are going to, looks like we're going to hibernate all weekend because we're getting some cold, cold weather and some ice coming in. So interesting times with the climate. I know um, we have listeners from all around the world and a lot around North America. So I hope wherever you are, you are staying warm. For those of you that don't know um, FutureCon, I'm the CEO of FutureCon as well. We Host cybersecurity conferences all over North America. And we just got our little yearly break that we get once a year. We take off from not really take off, but we stop doing our shows. We do about 29 shows and from the second week to December until the second or third week of um, January we our team we host no shows we're going back on the road next week we're going out to Los Angeles we're super excited for our first um, kickoff event next week in Los Angeles we have three in a row and then we go to the Windy City and then we go to Dallas where my guest is from today so if you guys are out there in, in one of those regions we'd love to see you in person you can and just go to Future Events and register for any of our events and all of our events stream in a hybrid mode. So um, check us out. We have some really great speakers and we'd love to see you. So today I am very excited for um, my guest. He has been on the show in the past and he has frequently, he's a few times has been a keynote speaker at our events in Dallas. Um, today I have uh, Philip Wiley. He's the director of security at um, Alias Cybersecurity. And he also, last week, Jonathan Kimmet, who is the CISO over there. Um, Jonathan, he does guest hosts a lot of these shows when I'm out of town. And Philip and Jonathan work together. Uh, Philip has authored many books and I'm very excited to have him back as a guest. Today, we're going to talk about the Pen Tester's Playbook, a deep dive into offensive security tack it takes. so philip welcome to the show
2: thanks for having me back it's uh, great to see you and i look forward to future con at the end of the month here in dallas so.
1: yeah we're really excited for that that's going to be you know we ha- always have that at the house of blues and i don't know if you know um the CISO um jeff kirby do you know jeff kirby um, yes, sure he is, he is uh wrapping up the day he's have he has her his band his and he's doing some cybersecurity they're doing from 5:30 to 6:30 after the event at the house of the blues his band is called Skeptor and they have like some cybersecurity rock and roll and that event afterwards is always a fun event so hopefully you'll be there and join the fun festivities during the day and then afterwards
2: Yeah. I knew about his band, but I haven't heard him yet. So I look forward to hearing his band and for anyone that's in the area or any of the areas that the future con events are on, I really recommend it because especially some people that uh, don't like really huge crowds. It's kind of a nice size audience that uh, it's not too crowded and makes it easier to network. So it's a really great event. And I do like that you've continued to do these hybrid, you know, because we had so much hybrid stuff during the pandemic but there's some people that can't afford to travel these places and some people just aren't comfortable in crowds, even though, you know, we're kind of on the other side of the pandemic now. But I think it's great that that you offer that, you know, people that are immunocompromised or just n- n- don't feel safe, but it's uh, great that you're doing that.
1: Yeah. And it's not even really about like, you know, COVID or anything about that. It's just the profession that we're in. There's so many people that just cannot leave their office. They just can't get away. And they love that we offer them that resource and they can still get their CPEs and they can still kind of watch all the fun we're having. And it really uh, works out great because normally once they see it um, virtually, they want to come and they end up eventually coming when we come to a city near them. So. It's been a great, it's just something that's the new way that we run things, and we'll probably always keep it that way because it's just a great way to spread all of you know we get so many great speakers we want to make sure that we're putting you know our speakers out there to as many people as possible so so tell us philip about like you had a big transition um how did that you were prior to that you were working for who was it again i forgot who you were before
2: i came to work for alias i was working at scythe okay
1: and then um, you were launching some books you just had didn't you just release another book in the past year
2: no, no new books. Just still, still the one, the Pentester Blueprint. Although I've got okay. a couple ideas for a couple of different books. Uh, Wiley, my publisher on my book, uh, I have an idea for them, and then uh, No Starch Press also approached me about writing a book for them. So a couple ideas on that. So we'll see. The one for No Starch would be a pen testing book. So, uh, and I'm also a podcaster too. So for those that that don't know me, I host the. Uh, the Philip Wiley Show, and previously I hosted the the uh, Hacker Factory, which I won a Sands Difference Makers Award for last month.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about your career before we jump into because today we're going to talk about, I told everyone that, Pentester's Playbook, a deep dive into offensive security tactics, but give us a little background on you and, you know, some of your, you know, um, some of your past experience and what you've been doing with, um you know, some of the pen testing you've been doing in the past and just your
2: history. Sure. So I got my start before I got into cybersecurity. I worked as a system administrator for a little over six years. And then in 2004, actually this year makes my 20th year anniversary of moving over to cybersecurity. So I started out doing network security. So we managed firewalls, intrusion detection systems, as well as did some risk assessments of vulnerability scans And then about 2005, the company I worked for had a new CISO come in. He had a more modern idea of the way uh, security organizations were operating. So he created a application security group and I moved over to the application security group. I was managing our third party pen test as well as doing some application security vulnerability scanning and really got interested in, in pen testing, took some different courses on pen testing. And then in 2012, I got laid off from my job and I applied for a job at Verizon on their consulting team as a penetration tester. So that's kind of where I got started. So I've been on the offensive side coming up on 12 years. So it's out of all the different areas I've worked in, in my career, this is the one I've been in the longest and the one I've in, enjoyed the most. And kind of what got my me interested in that is when I was a kid, it got me interested in the whole hacking thing. When I was a kid, a toddler, my dad used to take apart my toys, you know, these different mechanical electronic toys to see how they work. And. It was kind of a bad thing because a good thing for me, but uh, mom didn't like it too well because we were taking our toys apart. And so that's what got me curious to that. But it's a really interesting area. And I think one of the things and, you know, last time I was on, we talked more about pen testing careers. But I think this time, uh, you know, we're focusing more on how people can leverage penetration tests, the different types of assessments and offensive security as a whole. There's a lot of good opportunities there. But there are a lot of gaps. People miss a lot of things when it comes to pen testing. They usually take that checkbox approach. It's required for compliance. That's the only reason that they're doing it. And there's a lot of other areas that they're not having assessments done on that could be leveraged by threat actors that maybe you have a really secure network, but maybe your physical controls aren't good. Uh, someone's able to get into your building, gain access to a system, and you don't have to be able to hack into a system. Someone walks away from their computer and leaves it open. So there's a lot of opportunities for people to get uh, better value out of their assessments.
1: Can you tell us a little bit of what does it look like to be a pen tester and what does your job like? Tell us exactly, because not everyone, you know, not everyone really understands what a pen tester does.
2: Sure. And one thing is just for anyone from a career perspective, that's looking at it, it looks fun. It is a fun job if you like that. But one of the things you have to really be passionate about pen testing if you go into it, because sometimes we work some crazy hours. Sometimes organizations want us to do our testing after hours, not to take any systems down. Maybe they're, it's a bank and you need any of the applications used for banking to properly function. Sometimes if you're performing a pen test, you might accidentally take down a system so a lot of cases they want this done after hours. So if you're someone that doesn't like to be up really late and work crazy hours, this may not be the job for you. I've worked lots of projects where, you know, we started after business hours and then I've worked on some projects for like a, a large global airlines once where our testing hours were from six, 6 PM to 6 AM. And so it's, it's a fun job. You get to do the hacking piece, but sometimes There are pieces that we do as pen testers that can be kind of boring, like running the vulnerability scans. We're running our vulnerability scans against our targets that are in scope for the pen test. We have to go back and validate those findings. And sometimes things like uh, certificate-related, TLS and SSL-related findings can be kind of boring to to, to validate Because when you're performing a pen test, you're not only, you know, you run the vulnerability scanners. Sometimes it finds false positives. You have to go back and validate that it is a true finding and not a false positive. And then as a pen tester, you go in and try to exploit or hack those vulnerabilities. So we're trying to find any vulnerability that can be exploited to get in, getting access to the system. And we'll make sure we're testing all those. We don't want to leave anything missing because if you go through and something's missing, a threat actor can come in and exploit that. And one of the importance of why we need to do offensive security, pen testing is just a part of that is when you think about companies that are worried about getting hacked by malicious hackers, and I say malicious hackers because there's people like myself and team members that were hackers, were professional hackers or ethical hackers, sometimes referred to white hat hackers, but we're, we're, we're doing this for, for good. And there's malicious hackers. So you always hear companies are worried about being hacked, worried about hackers or threat actors. So the best way to protect and find those vulnerabilities is to do it from a threat actor perspective.
1: So let's just um, how do you break that down when you when we look into like the deep dive into offensive security? Well, what what is a blueprint of that? If you're going into a company and you know this is new to a company and they're like, we don't even know anything about pen testing. We just want to make sure we're not going to be hacked. So how how do you describe that to the non security professional when you walk into their company to try sure. to get them to protect ourselves.
2: Yeah. One of the things that's a good idea to do first, especially considering if the company has, hasn't really had much pen testing done, maybe they're new to pen testing, then it's good, like good to do a baseline security assessment. And that's where the team comes in. We're running some scans. We're looking for the low hanging fruit, things that are very obvious and risky findings. We look for all those. We look for any kind of uh, physical security, possible physical security issues, we do a report and then from there, we kind of decide what needs to be done pen testing wise. You know, if you've got a lot of applications and most companies are gonna have some kind of network, whether you have a host cloud-based or on-prem or hybrid, then you kind of assess what needs to be tested from there. And so uh, one of the things too that needs to be explained is you hear a lot of times uh, offensive security being generalized as red teaming, and that's really not the correct term. A penetration test is where you perform a test where you're looking for all the vulnerabilities that can be exploited and hack all those vulnerabilities to see what can happen if you're able to exploit that vulnerability, are you able to get access to data, are you able to elevate your privileges to a higher level user that may have access to data that a regular user may not. But when you get to the red team, we're doing more with a pen test. people are being notified. So that way they know it's not malicious activity and they know to... Uh, talk to the security team that's doing the pen test to make sure if some strange activity is going on, they can validate that. But when you're doing a red team operation, this is going unknown. There's a control group, usually the CISOs in the control group, very few people, because uh, part of the red team, you're testing the defenders, you're making sure that they're detecting any kind of uh, malicious activity, they're reporting it, testing their incident response plan and all that. So you're testing the people and the technology, but you don't want to tip off the defenders. If they know you're coming, then, you know, they may they may be able to find you and you're really wanting to see what would happen more like a real world uh, threat actor attack. So you're trying to test it from that perspective. And, you know, that's, and, and you hear some companies that are doing it right, that really have their, their security set up optimally. I've heard of companies that had incident response uh, retainers with companies and during these red team operations they actually called the company they had the retainer with because they thought they were being attacked this is a perfect example of the way you should operate but that's the advantage to a red team operation you're testing the defenders and you're testing the technology and all the procedures so we need to 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 know that there's differences between that so
1: well, um, jo- I see Jonathan Kimmett has joined our show earlier. I just noticed he had a few comments. So thanks, Jonathan, for joining us. And um, one of the things that he he had a question, and it, it maybe goes hand in hand with what I just kind of was talking about. Do you think that an organization that does have a security staff could benefit from a pen test?
2: Yes, I think every everyone can benefit from a pen test. You really need to be doing uh, pen tests because – You know, you're trying to protect against those threat actors. If you don't have pen testers, whether they're your own or a third party doing consulting for you, if you don't find it, the bad guys are going to find it. And you can just kind of see the breaches are more and more. uh, You know, whenever I first started in security 20 years ago, you didn't see the amount of breaches that we do nowadays, which is kind of interesting. It's tougher to hack into stuff nowadays, but the threat actors are getting smarter. And now you've got the uh, availability of AI through chat GPT to help you in your attempts. So it's getting a lot more difficult. So companies really need to be doing pen tests. There's really no excuse not to be doing pen testing because you you, you can run your vulnerability scans and you may see these vulnerabilities, but you're not really going to know what's possible. And even if it's exploitable, there could be mitigating controls that maybe that Nessus vulnerability scanner Qualys or Nexpose scanner may detect those vulnerabilities, but maybe there's mitigating controls in place that are preventing it from being breached. There could be certain firewall rules in place, different mitigating controls. So at the same time, it's also uh, finding things that you may have found in your vulnerability scanner that you think is a risk, but it's not.
1: Well, what would be an example of something that, you know, you go into pen tests, what what are some of the common things that you're finding when you go do
2: a pen test? A lot of the things, things we see is vulnerabilities due to not running the latest software. Uh, of course there are zero days that there's no fix for, uh, and typically, you know, some really highly skilled pen testers are finding zero days on pen tests. And the benefit of that is if they're coming there testing that they're finding things before it's even being uh, added to like vulnerability scanners. So that's, uh, one of the, one of the advantages there.
1: And so once you're going in, and um, if a company's, you know, do the security teams or some of these certifications are they being trained on how to? Do you have to actually be a pen tester to pen test? <laughs> I mean, is it there's still ways that the security teams are can do some, you know, proactive testing on what vulnerabilities there might be out there?
2: Sure. One of the things that they're, they they want to do, and most companies do, is make sure you're doing some reoccurring vulnerability scans. Because just like Microsoft has their patch Tuesday where they're putting out these patches, also that's a, the same day that the threat actors are finding out how to reverse engineer those patches and how to exploit those. So there's things they can do like vulnerability scanning. Uh, but one of the things I'd advise if you're in any organization is even if you're using a third party to do your pen testing, it's a good idea to train some people internally uh, for pen testing. And there's lots of good training out there for that. But you really want someone that's really skilled. But if you're not really skilled or experienced at it, it's going to be kind of hard to really be be very effective. But some of the things you can do is if your consulting company will allow it, uh, see if your security uh, professionals, your your staff can shadow the pen tester and kind of watch them and see what they're doing. If they allow that, it's a good learning experience for them. And I would advise even if pen testing uh, education is good for people, whether they're going to pen test or not, they kind of rely, get to see the risks of these different types of vulnerabilities. And so I think that's good whether you're going to work in that area or not. But if you're going to do the pen testing, they definitely need to be trained because one of the things with pen testing is if you're not careful, you can break things. You can take down uh, different systems out of production and you don't want to do that.
1: So with there being such a high demand and cybersecurity you know, practitioners in the industry, um, I would imagine... Is, is pen testers, are they a pretty hot commodity? Is it hard to find enough pen testers to fill all the positions that are out there?
2: Yes, it's it's kind of like in line with the other areas of cybersecurity. It's really hard to to find people and, and there's less pen testers and probably a little more difficult to find find pen testers.
1: Um, well, Jonathan said, what is a good career background that helps people get into pen testing?
2: If you have like an existing security background or sysadmin background, that's one of the things that helped me. If you have like a development background, say you're a software developer, a web developer, if you have that background, you could become an application pen tester. So basically you need to know the technology before you can defend it and before you can hack into it. So you have to have that technical background. Uh, so understanding operating systems from a sysadmin level and you don't have to spend six years like I did as a sysadmin and then seven years in security before moving into that. For me, I probably would have moved into pen testing if I knew about it sooner, but it does take a lot of uh, upfront training and stuff to get, get those skills because you have to understand the technology. So for instance, a good path for someone that's starting out with no experience at all. uh, And you don't necessarily have to get the certifications, but, do like a plus training to learn the computer side of things, network plus to understand the networking, and then like security plus. This kind of helps give you the basics. So once you have those uh, different skills and knowledge down, then you can move on to performing pen tests.
1: So, one another question, Jonathan said, Could a non technical person be a good pen tester?
2: Yes, you never know what someone's skill set is until they start learning the technology. A good example for me is actually, if if you go back before my sysadmin days, I started out, I went to trade school to be a CAD drafter, a computer-assisted drafter. Uh, I learned AutoCAD, and this was back in 93 to 94. I had no computer skills at that time, probably the worst in my class because other people had, had experience with computers. But by the time I got out of school, got out in the workforce, my computer skills were better than my peers as as CAD drafters. Uh, I was able to f- figure out some of the new features of AutoCAD when it came out before my peers. Uh, Windows 95 was kind of new at the time. I was able to figure out some of the network and printing options. And so if you're if you're non-technical, you just, you won't know until you get in and start doing it. But you can be, you know, because everyone that's a pen tester, you know, when I was a, a sysadmin, I didn't have, when I started as a sysadmin, I didn't have that sysadmin background. I had to gain it. So, you can, you can come from uh, non-technical backgrounds. Uh, as an example, on one of my podcasts, I had someone that was an esthetician. And it's like people that do these beauty treatments. So beyond just the regular beauty shop kind of stuff, a little more technical, requires a little more schooling for it. She was 40 years old and went to school, got a, an associate's degree in IT, and then got another associate's degree in cybersecurity, and then went to work as a pen tester, so she came from something totally not technical, and you really don't know how well you're going to fare until you get into it and start working with it. And maybe you hadn't been that good at technical things, but once you take a class and learn the basics and learn how it, understand how it works, then you'll get a better idea of how well you like it and how quickly you can pick up on those, those different types of topics.
1: Well, it seems to me, and I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but... Um having three kids and they're all kind of spaced out. I still have a younger one that's that's you know so I have a 9 year gap between the oldest and the youngest. So a lot of things have happened during those 9 years and I and the oldest one he was a gamer, but back then it just seemed to be all boys that were gamers. Now Mm -hmm. she's 19 and she's a gamer and a lot of her friends are gamers, but my middle daughter was never a gamer. So it's, you know, times have changed and I feel like gamers are very, you know, competitive and they're always trying to win because they're on these games. Why? Isn't that in a sense what pen testing is doing is that you're trying to get in there and basically win what you're trying to find. I mean, I'm just trying to put it in a layman's term. So if we have all this young generation that are out there, more gamers now, and there's even, I've even learned that like the most popular game that's out there right now is a very good game. I don't know the name of it. I just heard this this morning and I know it's a game my daughter plays and it's more social social stuff that's not the bad stuff that some Mm -hmm. of these other games have had i don't know if you know what game i'm talking about but shouldn't we see a rise of people getting into the industry because you know i try to always convince her she should go down this this route of cybersecurity because she you know loves that kind of challenge of these games so i guess my point is how do we advocate for these younger generations to push into, you know, this career path? Because it could be, in a way, just like gaming.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that because a lo- I, there's a lot of people in the industry that are into gaming that do really well at pen testing, learning how to hack. And another good way to do that is get them interested in CTFs, capture the flags, because capture the flag competitions are you have to hack into other systems and get the flag in some cases it cases it could be opportunities to uh work with cryptography and different other security uh items or topics so that's a good place to do it and and it's interesting because there are some organizations that have created like these esports leagues and they're kind of like hacking competitions so if you've got a young person that likes gaming get them interested into ctfs because actually There is a, uh, some of the universities have what's called CCDC. It's an attack and defend competition where you have teams trying to get into the other team's uh, systems and vice versa. And you're trying to block. It's a block and it's like a block and defend or hack and defend competition. And those are good. And there's also National Cyber League. While CCDC is only open to universities, uh, National Cyber League, I believe, is open to like high schools, too. So these are capture-the-flag competitions. And it's interesting, like with the, the National Cyber League, they keep a list of the rankings and hiring managers for companies will see these lists. And someone does well enough, it's possible that they could get a job within another company. And there's some CTFs at conferences. I had one of my friends and a really good hacker and pentester from the Dallas community. He was at a conference in Austin, I believe, and Lockheed Martin had a CTF. And if you're able to offer this if you're able to solve the CTF, then you were like guaranteed a job within Lockheed Martin. So there's being able to perform those challenges. Like if you're wanting to apply for a pen tester, you've been doing CTFs. They will give you challenges where you're performing a pen test or a CTF to go through and see how you solve it to decide whether you have the technical chops to join their team.
1: Yeah, it's it's just so interesting. Like just um, another thing I feel like this new generation These what do they call these young? I should know the Gen Z, I guess. Um,
2: Gen Gen Z or Zoomers, I think too.
1: Yeah, Gen Z. I think my daughter's a Gen Z. But that that generation, you know, now they also have this. Oh, we don't really need to go to college. We could, you know, you're seeing a big movement of that. You know, we can go to, you know, these these boot camp schools and you know all these different types of things that are out there that, that I have seen work for some people, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen these boot camps work for some people and I've seen them not work for some people. I've seen educations do great for some people. And then I've seen educate, you know, a four-year education do you know, not as well for some people. So, are we seeing in some of these boot camps because coding was a big thing? You know, we saw coding boot camps. You mm-hmm. know, make a huge. You know, they're making a lot of money off of these six month schools, and some of these these people. You know, uh, my nephew's doing really well, and because he went to one of those boot camps. So, are we seeing these kind of boot camps for pen testing and some of these other specific jobs in the cybersecurity
2: sector? I've seen it for other jobs, but I haven't seen any specific for pen testing. So they'll cover different topics. They may cover pen testing during that. Uh, But it's almost kind of like when you mentioned the coding boot camps, they also referred those as like immersion training because you're immersed in it. That's all you're doing is stuff related to coding. Uh, But I've heard of some schools. There's one, I can't think of the name of it, that I have several people I've mentored that have went through it, that you go through it and I think you get like the the security or the Coptia CYSA or security plus certifications through there, you go through these training, they kind of get you prepped into a position where you can get a job. And some of them are kind of, you know, some of them can be kind of expensive, but then some of them are more geared towards giving opportunities to people that otherwise may not be afforded. But sometimes these are good ways of learning because one of the things, uh, you know, not not college, it's a good experience, but some cases, if you're going to some university, the technology that they're teaching for security may be kind of a little outdated. So that kind of makes it a challenge there. But one of the examples I like to share, one of the the paths that I think is one of the best pa- paths for cybersecurity, if you're going to go to the university route, is I would get a degree in computer science because you can learn coding and how things work. Then you can go on and get like a master's in cybersecurity or either take some certification courses or other direct uh, training towards specific fields of specialization and learn how to pick that up. Because if you learn uh, how to code and you're learning computer science, then there's some things you're going to be able to do that your peers, that they didn't go through that type of program, won't be able to do. And while it's not necessary, uh, some of the best pen testers out there know how to code or write scripts. They're able to automate some of the tasks that you're doing.
1: Well, Jonathan had a couple of comments. One, he just, it was just a comment saying, saying I heard people who like puzzles seem to really like pen testing and CTF. Um, That's true. Which makes sense because again, it's its that whole challenge of, you know, trying to break the code in a way, mm-hmm. you know. And then he said, um, I really enjoy boot camps, but I encourage people to find the type of training they respond to and enjoy. As long as they're learning, you're improving, which, which is true. And we're just... I don't know if you agree with me that I just feel like this generation, it's just a different, you know, there, there's a sector of them um, that just, you know, the, the, you know, university is not as impactful as it was completely required for, you know, the, the last two generations of my kids.
2: Yeah, and one of the things to look at too, some of your uh, the big four consulting firms a few years ago eliminated the need for a four year degree. So you could get jobs without a four year degree. They're seeing ways of getting in. But I think really, I think the university system should be looked at and improved upon because one of the things I used to teach at Dallas College, I taught pen testing, web app pen testing there for almost four years. But one of the things I ran into that my other peers, since they were purely academic, Uh, teaching there, one of the things they weren't teaching students is to network, go to these different cybersecurity meetups, go to different conferences, network people, they weren't being taught this. And so, you know, it was hard for them to get jobs. So I think there's some, some things that are missing. I would like to see some of these programs revamped. And I understand art appreciation, music appreciation makes people more rounded. But I think if we had degree programs that were more focused on the technology Uh, maybe really get into the writing. Your English composition class is good, but we should have like some tech writing courses, Uh, have them take some project management courses, more things that are, that will expose them to different areas of IT and cybersecurity. And that's the way I think you make a real, a more well-rounded security or IT person is exposing them to the different types of things, because maybe you're really organized and you like project management Within consulting companies and organizations, they have engagement managers or project managers that are basically uh, working on staffing pen tests, scoping pen tests, uh, helping uh, build the statement of work and all this for the the pen test. So there's other areas. I think the students aren't getting enough exposure to those different types of areas to really have a good formed idea of what they want to do once they complete at the university.
1: So do you think that because there's such a shortage of um, IT professionals and positions that we need in this industry, do you think that the industry needs to become more creative, just like you were talking about, you know, the big five consulting firms starting to not require degrees? Um, For instance, I was just thinking... You know, I have a friend of mine that is a hairstylist, and I've seen that he's taken like two years. I think there's something in that industry that, you know, you can on the job train with a stylist and to get your license. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a big commitment for the person that's training them. But um eventually that person ends up getting their, you know, hair license. So do you think we're gonna start seeing some changes in the industry because we do need more people and we can't just sit around and wait for people to graduate from university because it's not happening fast enough.
2: I think we should and that would be apprenticeships. And that's one of the things I've kind of recommended for a while when people Asking about ways to help that employment gap, the skills gap. And one of the things I've recommended is apprenticeships. I talked to a company a couple of years ago that do pen tests as a service, and I was talking to them about it. They said they could possibly do an apprenticeship program, but they can only have about one apprentice per six months. And one of the things about apprenticeships, it's like an internship. You look at internships, you're going to a college, uh, people that get out of college. So, anyone listening, if you're going to college, get an internship if you can, because then you're going to have three months, six months worth of experience. And the biggest hurdle of getting in, getting a job in cybersecurity is having the experience. So I'd really love to see more apprenticeship programs. Maybe this needs to be driven by the government. I really wish more companies would do that. And, and for I stand, we've kind of done things like that at Alias. They've brought people in without experience in that area and trained them and they're functioning cybersecurity folks doing a great job, more companies need to do that. I know so many people are so bent on having the experience, but if you did an apprenticeship, you bring people in, you give them 90 days to learn, you come in, train them. And if they pick it up and do a good job, you can hire them full time. But if, you know, they really weren't that awesome enough to make a commitment to hire them full time, then you've given this person three months or six months worth of experience. Now they can go somewhere else and get hired.
1: Well, um, Jonathan said, yes, apprenticeships are a great way. And I would love to see more of them um, for new cyber people. He is the perfect example. You know, when he was a CISO over at the University of Tulsa, I've said this many times on the show, you know, he took the students and built their SOC team from the students, which is, you know, why is not every university doing that? I mean, now these kids are going to graduate. They already have, you know, on the you know, they already have an ship because they did it at their university. And, you know, I think, doesn't some of that have to be regulated, though? If someone is going to take an apprentice on, they're still, what are they going to get at the end of that apprenticeship? They're going to get work experience. But again, what kind of... Um, you know, what kind of credentials are they going to get from that? It would be nice to see them earn some sort of something in the industry to make them again more, um you know, just just more on their resume, more ready for someone to hire them in a, in a role that we need desperately in the industry.
2: Yeah, to give them some kind of certification, you'd have to create some kind of certifying body or maybe some company that does certifications would come up with something that you were able to get this experience. But if someone does an apprenticeship, then they've got this to put on their work history. They worked at this company for, it's like a job. It's like a contract job. So this is information that they can put on their resume. And one of the things I recommend too, for people starting out is to create a portfolio. We've always thought about artists, graphics designers, creating portfolios, but we're really in an age now is a way to prove what you're doing and what you've even done studying-wise is to uh, write blog posts, document your education journey, uh, you know, describe the different things you've done. If you're a pen tester, if you're doing things like CTFs and hack the box and try Hack Me, document, you know, write pen test reports on those different systems that you've hacked through that education journey. And this gives you something to show a potential employer if you like doing videos do walkthrough videos there's a lot of people on YouTube that are doing walkthrough videos and a lot of these folks were just doing stuff to educate themselves or document their journey but this is information that you can show a hiring manager a prime example is we had a recent college grad that went to our uh, our local defcon group the def defcon two and four which is the Dallas defcon group they were a recent college grad and they did a presentation on malware analysis a hiring manager from Citigroup was in the audience, saw the presentation, asked for the resume and they got hired. They basically did a technical interview without realizing they're doing a technical interview, but build these portfolios. If you go speak at speak these different groups, like I said, creating videos for YouTube, this is a good way for employers to go on your LinkedIn profile and see what you're doing. If you're comparing your uh, LinkedIn profile to someone else and everything's identical, certifications, education is identical, If you've gone this extra step and been able to prove things through write-ups, maybe you've even created some scripts that you put on a GitHub account, you're able to document these things you're doing. You're showing that you're putting a little more effort into it. You're documenting it. And hiring managers and HR people don't have a ton of time to go through and look through every resume and every LinkedIn profile. But if they see these things in there and stand out, it's pretty much a no-brainer to pick that person to interview.
1: So before we got way off topic and we took a right turn here, <laughs> um, we're, something's weird is going on with LinkedIn Live today. And um, I had a DM, somebody messaged me because they, they can't get their messages on the LinkedIn. And they said, how do you navigate the legal and compliance aspects of offensive security testing to ensure that activities are conducted within the bounds of the law? a really good question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So basically if you have the permission from the organization to pen test their uh, company, then you're in the bounds of the law. So if someone come up and wanted you to test someone else without permission, that's totally illegal. So one of the things when you are working as a pen tester, if it's an internal organization for your company, there's really nothing that has to be signed there. But typically if you're a consulting company, then you have like your statement of work and stuff that they sign to let them know what's going on, setting the rules of engagement, the type of testing that's being performed. Because one type of uh, testing that hardly anyone does, this is usually a requirement, a request by the customer, but people are always worried about it is denial of service testing. And that's not typically something you can do that could be tested. Usually the vulnerabilities will show up, whether it's, you know, uh, vulnerable denial of service. You only really want to test denial of service because it takes it down. But as far as staying legal, uh, you're just, you know, you're got the agreement with the company. They're signing this paperwork. Now, if you're doing like bug bounty or something like that, you found bugs. You don't want to do that on your own because then you're looking at uh, getting, go- you know, getting into some legal issues. So you want to go through a someone like Bugcrowd or HackerOne or Integrity to do bug bounties and follow their uh, rules of engagement, and you'll be protected through that. Uh, so you, so as far as just like a regular pen tester, you're a consultant, then that's something you really don't have to worry about because you're getting agreement from the company and you want to stay within the, the scope of the work. Usually people don't run anything that's going to get them in trouble, but if they were to accidentally hack a different company, that's a different story. So as a pen tester, you're wanting to always test your scope. If you're doing an external pen test, you want to make sure you verify that that uh, subnet of IP addresses belong to that customer you're testing, because I've actually heard of some people accidentally testing the wrong company. A good example and a funny story is Jason E. Street. He's a really well-known uh, social engineer and uh pen tester. And one time he was in Lebanon and he actually hacked into the wrong bank. So he was; they were in the same building. He hacked the wrong place. And so fortunately, his customer was able to tell the other bank, hey, you got a free pen test out of the deal and nothing Uh bad come out of it. It could have turned into something bad if the company wanted to pursue legal actions.
1: Well, and, you know, right now I would assume, you know, that is the top of everyone's mind is, you know, I need to protect myself legally because of some of the things that we are seeing happening in the industry where we've never seen you know, indictments on because of, you know, some breaches that have happened. So Jonathan made a good point. He said, even if you work for an organization as a pen tester, you might consider getting a formal letter documentation saying you can perform the pen test, which I would think from a legal at just, a, you know, CYA, you know, is, is a very smart
2: thing. So, so typically the documents that you get from during the pen test that you have the customer sign is usually good enough, but if you're doing something like social engineering or physical pen testing, where you're going on site in risk of getting caught by security guards or even possibly law enforcement, then you can have a document like that. Sometimes they refer to as a get out of jail free card. It's showing you have permission. So you could be testing the security of a building. You're in a building and security comes along or law enforcement catches you there. You need to be able to prove that you have permission to be there as well as this document needs to have contacts so they can contact people within the organization to prove it because anyone could write up a letter forge this and carry it with them but you need those contacts so that way they can verify not always they're going to trust you because a threat actor could make a document like that carry it with them and give it to somebody and uh and maybe they or, you know, work with pen tests then that's good enough. And they go at that, but really they should validate to make sure that it's a legit penetration test.
1: So what is the, the difference between an ethical
2: hacker and a pen tester? So ethical hacking is really the skills of doing the hacking. A penetration test is you're performing this assessment, documenting, documenting it in a report. And ethical hacking is just the actual act of doing the ethical hacking piece. So a penetration tester you're running vulnerability scans looking for other vulnerabilities and documenting those whether they're able to to be hacked or not an ethical hacker sometimes are just going in seeing if they can hack into something and just very limited in the scope of their reporting but te- technically ethical hacking is just one of the skills that a penetration tester does it's just kind of almost a synonymous term and easier for the general public to understand when you tell someone they're a pen tester or a penetration tester they're not going to have any clue what you're talking about. They may think you work for an ink pen company testing ink pens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. Well, is there um, something like specifically that you've done as a pen tester in your career that, you know, I you say, you know, you have to stay up all night, probably what, running like certain scripts on, you know, I don't even know your terminology to say, but what is something fun that you have done in your career that you're like, wow, that was really cool and we... we We completed our mission. Like, can you give us an example of something that just was fun and positive with a positive outcome?
2: Sure. One of my most favorite moments was through a database uh, vulnerability, SQL injection vulnerability. I was doing a penetration test, and this was from the outside of an organization from the internet. And through that SQL injection vulnerability, I was able to get command line access or a terminal on that Microsoft Windows server that was running Microsoft SQL. Server, I was able to dump the password hash and crack that password hash and gain, get the administrator password of that system. So that was probably one of my most memorable and, and favorite moments. But as far as another experience I like to share with people, and this is a, a reason to pen test more frequently and do your remediation. So one of my former uh, consulting jobs, I did an p- external pen test for a company and they did a good job of their remediation But one of the things that happened is they remediated all the highs, uh, criticals and mediums, but they had a couple low-level vulnerabilities, which is normally okay to leave, but they also paid for a 90-day retest. So 90 days later, I came in to retest, and one of those low-level, low-criticality vulnerabilities, someone figured out how to exploit it. So I went back and did my test. Again, it was now a high-level vulnerability. So if they only did annual pen tests, no retest, that vulnerability would have been exposed for like another year. So that's one of the reasons I really like to preach remediation and why you should try to remediate everything. And also consistent testing. Make sure you're testing more frequently, not just once a year. Because if it wasn't for me doing this retest, like I said, that would have been laying out there vulnerable. So it's kind of a a good lesson I learned and what I like to share with people when it comes to pen testing frequency and and remediation.
1: So do most, like how many... Is it more big level, you know, enterprise companies that can have afford to have a full time pen tester on site? Um, what would you say is the percentage of companies that have an on site, like a hired staff pen tester?
2: For the big companies, it's getting pretty pretty common. I worked for used to work for a bank, and we had like thirteen or fourteen pen testers in house, and we're also using consulting companies, and sometimes it can kind of help with the cost because if you're doing Everything purely through consulting, it can get pretty expensive. So I see a lot of people, in some cases, they may have someone on staff that pen testing is not their, their only role. And maybe they're doing other security items and once or twice a year or more frequently than that, they perform some pen testing. So sometimes it's a, a part-time role internally. That's like a lot of the IT roles. You've seen some of these smaller companies compared to the enterprise's enterprises, people are more siloed because they can find specialists to work in these areas. There's so much work they can do that. But some of these smaller uh, companies, they may only have limited staff, so people are wearing multiple hats, doing multiple roles.
1: So, you know, one of the big trends that I've seen over the past, really ever since post-COVID is so many... CISOs and so many people going out and doing their own thing. Um, is there a huge need because people can't afford to have a full time um, person? Are are these? I have no idea if these people, you know, that leave their big job with a big company and go out on their own. Or do do you see a success rate in that?
2: Yeah, I've seen several people that have been successful with that. One of my former coworkers from my first pen test job. Uh, He got laid off from a company and decided to go in business for himself. And he's actually doing contracting for a former employer and he's staying busy with that full time. One of the things that you, you can do there, like with the contract work, he was making more than he was making as a W2 employee, but he can also take on other work while he was working for that company. All he could do is work for them. So he's limited the companies he could do pen tests. So as a free agent, you know, owning your own company, you know, you could do contract work, you can do pen tests for several other companies, and, you know, you can end up making a lot more money because, for instance, you know, some companies, and this is kind of a more reasonable lower end of the the the, the charge, as I've seen companies that are charging, uh, you know, $300 an hour or more, and some of these people with their own businesses are going in charging $200 an hour, able to charge less money and and getting work because some of these Uh, organizations can't pay the 300 to $400 hour for a pen tester. So I, I see people being successful with it, but you have to be a really good self-starter and, and make sure you continue to get business, uh, maximize your networking opportunities to continue to keep that work coming in.
1: So are the companies generally relying on those? Um, you know, I, I guess they'd be, uh, what, what what I just went blank, their um, interim CISO or whatever they would call it because it's a contractor. Are they relying mm-hmm. on those CISOs or those contractors to um, push them to the right vendor company? Or, you know.
2: Yeah, I, th- I would say some case like that. It's kind of what uh, Jonathan does. He's our CISO, but he also does V-CISO work. And V-CISO, v- yeah. that's what I was V-CISO. trying to get to. Yeah. So yeah. these virtual CISOs are helping uh, show them, push them in the right direction. They may have some recommendations. Someone like Jonathan works for Alias. So of course uh, he could share the services there, but say if someone is, uh, you know, like was mentioned earlier, like Alan, for instance, uh, you know, Alan works for a company, but a lot of guys like him will go off and start their own company just purely doing VC. So for several companies, that's all they're doing, but then they would push them towards other consulting company for those type of services. They would usually have some kind of partnership that uh, they kind of use them for v c so, and then they uh, recommend them for the other companies for consulting.
1: It's very interesting. It's just times have changed so much in the last three to four years. I think people are just there's such a high need, a high demand. again, that this wasn't really the place we meant to go on this conversation was talking about the shortage in the industry. but I think you know there's so many opportunities for people to do you know so much more, you know in the industry from a income wise, because there's a lot of opportunities for people that cannot afford a full-time CISO, a full-time pen tester. So I haven't seen a lot of, um, you probably have seen more than me, you know, pen testers that are out there on their own, but I would imagine that is a really nice role to probably be in as long as you have the business side to you and you can get in the door to those places.
2: Yeah, that would be the main thing because some of the difficulties I see for some folks is some pen testers, like a lot of uh, technical, really technical folks sometimes can be really introverted and shy. So getting out there and getting the business can be kind of difficult. And, you know, you have to be a self-starter and, and you know, really be structured to do that type of thing. So that's a lot of reasons why a lot of us work for companies instead of doing our own thing. There's there's more money to do it on your own, but there's a higher risk to
1: That's why there's a lot of people that attend our events virtually, because it's easier for them to go virtual than come out and be intimidated by all the people that are at our events. But we are down to about two minutes left here. And is there any like last words that you would want to give to our listeners of how to stay on the offensive side before you have to act on the defensive side?
2: Yeah. So one of the things I would say is educate yourself, even if you're not, if you don't want to be a pen tester, there's good uh, resources out there. Learn, you know, watch, go to some conferences, see some offensive security talks. Uh, If you don't want to get into learning pen testing, then there's resources like the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And MITRE ATT&CK kind of shows you how the threat actors are working, uh, the type of attacks they're using and the type of industries they're they're going after, and also some good cyber threat intelligence, good to keep up with cyber threat intelligence to see what kind of companies they're attacking and the type of uh, different tactics, techniques, and uh, procedures that they're doing so you can kind of keep up with that. So you can understand the offensive mind without actually becoming a pen tester.
1: Well, Philip, it was so great to have you on the show again. Um, Hopefully we'll see you in Dallas at the end of the month. And are you guys having any cold weather over in Dallas right now?
2: Yeah, it's been pretty cold for us. It started out this morning in the 20s. It's up to 42. We were supposed to get a high of 60. But yeah, it's really cold. We're supposed to have some days in the teens next week. So. (laughs) <laughs> I
1: think it's it's making its way through the country. So It
2: is. Yeah. Well,
1: Philip Wiley, he's the director of security over at Alias Cybersecurity. Thank you so much for being on our show again. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. And I hope you all have a warm weekend wherever you are. I hope you stay warm, stay safe, stay secure. And we will see you next week for another episode of And Security For All. So uh, have a great weekend, everyone.
0: a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training, discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to FutureConEvents.com or email info at or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureCon HQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series, focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers, making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.